Today on Karina and Kirsten Get to Work, we're talking about white privilege and racism at work. Yikes. Mm -hmm. Big stuff. Welcome to Karina and Kirsten Get to Work. I'm Kirsten Barron. And I'm Karina Hoyer. And we are so very glad that you've joined us, especially today. We have a big topic on board. As you know, we talk about, on Karina and Kirsten Get to Work, women and work, because we want your workplace to have joy, meaning, and ease. And what better way to create joy, meaning, and ease than to get rid of racism in the workplace? Yeah, wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be great? Let's go for it. (laughs) I'm in. (laughs) So am I. Except I am, this show, more so than any other, has like kind of set me on it. Ed- not on edge, off kilter, made me nervous. What is, how about you? You used to comment when we were preparing that you feel like, oh my gosh, have I, have I been diligent enough? And for, for, for all of our listeners out there, this show has taken us the longest to prepare for than any other show. We've spent more time thinking through these issues and trying to figure out how we were going to say this, what we're going to say, educating ourselves, checking what we believe or don't believe. And so I think there's just a little bit more uncertainty, insecurity, and really kind of as white people, we don't really know, we don't have the experience of being a black person. So it's really hard for us to talk about this, but at the same time, we think it's a really important topic. Yeah. Very important topic. And so I think what you're going to get today is we're sort of pulling the curtains back a little bit and having what we hope to be a real and honest conversation about our own privilege as white people, as white women, and our own journey to understand white privilege, white fragility, racism. What all this means in the workplace and really just to us individually. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what roles we have in understanding, calling out and reversing this. Mm-hmm. And it is unnerving. I, I, you know, I speak for myself, it's unnerving because I don't want to mess it up. Which of course we will. Yeah. And that's, I think part of it is being honest and vulnerable that this is an important conversation. Therefore we are having it. And we also know we're not going to do it perfectly. Mm-hmm. And so we ask immediately for grace and understanding and trust our intentions, I think. Yeah, because we are going to make mistakes. We are going to stumble around a bit, but we're really just trying to do better. Which I think is what happens when people talk about race. We've been trained. We've been trained that racism is bad and we don't want to be bad. Mm-hmm. And we've been trained to say, I mean, I hear this all the time. I'm colorblind. I don't see color which of course means that you don't see somebody's experience in the world because part of the color of their skin is their experience in the world. And to say I'm colorblind says you don't see somebody's experience in the world. And that's how I think I, as I was brought up when I was, the way I've been brought up at work and school and my family is, yeah, racism is really bad. Only mean bad people are racist. Right. And it's an intentional act. And only mean bad people see race. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think what we're saying now and memorializing it for, you know, 50,000 listeners and all of the years and years and years that this podcast will live on is that actually we do see color, A. So like the thing that we've been trained that we don't see color, I'm going to tell you we do. Mm -hmm. Our brains Mm -hmm. do, whether or not intentional or not. And racism exists. And in fact, we as white people perpetuate it unknowingly. So let's talk about what we're talking about when we use some of these words, right? Yep. So let's talk about white privilege. How do you characterize white privilege? 
I'm going to just read right off the page here on this one because I want to get it right. White privilege is inherent advantages given to white people in a society with racial injustice and inequity. So in that, we are saying that there are racial injustices and inequity in our community, in our society, in our towns, in our schools, in our court systems, in our works. Mm -hmm. Works. Places. In our workplaces. In our workplaces. And white people don't experience it for the vast majority of what the vast majority of white people do not experience any of those inequities. Right. I like to think of it. It's like a system built for and by white people to advance white people. Yeah. That's how I think of white privilege. Have you ever had this conversation? I'm asking a leading question, but I also want to answer this. Have you had experience of having this kind of conversation with people who didn't quite get or didn't quite understand white privilege. Absolutely. What was the experience? People are super defensive. Defensive. Uh-huh. Really defensive. That doesn't exist. I don't see color. I have a black friend. Or how about this one? Like, I had to work hard for everything I got. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the big one that I've heard most. And again, I think that's a... It's a true, true. You it, sure have had to work and hard. And it's a very normal response. Mm-hmm. So if someone, if you're thinking to yourself right now, what do you mean the system is, I haven't, you know. The system's not rigged. I've had to work very hard. It was a merit-based system. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's not true. And we hope that you'll stick with us in listening to the rest of this show and come out the other side of it, recognizing that that is not, you know, that is not true. That defensiveness, when you hear the system is rigged, And you have benefited as a white person is absolutely true. Yeah. Do you want to say anything else about? I want to say one more thing about white privilege. It's very much like the patriarchy. You know, I sometimes Mm -hmm. think that men don't recognize the patriarchy and their privilege. I mean, that's not an uncommon thing. I think more and more men are, thankfully and gratefully. But I think the same thing is true for white people and white privilege. I don't think that we recognize or acknowledge what it is. Yeah, I think you're right. I'm trying to think of some examples off the cuff of white privilege that we might oh, be able to use. when you're in school, when you go to class, your teacher is probably white. When the police pull you over, the police officer is probably white. When you go and ask to speak to the manager, the manager is probably white. When you go to get a loan for your house, whoever you're talking to is probably white. So you know, there's all those issues. So the way that I was brought up to speak my language, my cultural language about how we express ourselves in our family is exactly the way we express ourselves in the workplace, Right. where if that's not the way our family culturally expresses ourselves in the home, then I have to learn a whole new language. Because right. it's not what I'm used to in my house. But for me, Kirsten, of course, it all just translated beautifully, because right. it was all created for me. By white people to advance me. That's right. And so likening it to the patriarchy to some degree, it's like women have to contort themselves to be more man-like in order to ascend to management Mm -hmm. positions, Mm -hmm. right? In order to fit in with the guys. Mm -hmm. People of color have to contort themselves to look like, sound like, act like more like white people to fit into the workplace. Yes. And maybe also to try and defeat stereotypes, right? Maybe to also defeat stereotypes. Like, I mean, if there's a stereotype that you're not a hard worker, well, then you work longer. And then what happens then is do people actually think you're a hard worker or you're not a smart worker? I mean, it's very complicated. Yes. Yes. This all assumes, by the way, you and I are really here. And we had in preparing for this show, I'm not sure in which of the three or four conversations we've had about it, we had this conversation, but 
this really assumes that there is racial inequity and injustice. Right. And your question to me was, Are do our listeners recognize that or do we have to convince them of that? And my comment to you was, and I didn't mean to be flip about it, but this show is not for people who don't think racism doesn't exist. Right. Right. It really isn't. It's not. We're There's- not into, yeah, we can't, we're going to assume that you understand that. But I do think that this idea of systemic racism mm-hmm. is new to some. Yeah, there's those three catchwords, right? There's systemic racism, there's institutional racism, and there is structural racism. So I've been to three or four trainings on diversity and inclusion and racism, and those are the three words I hear all the time. I'm not sure I quite fully understand them. The difference between the yes. three. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to go back to just kind of laying the groundwork. And then I want to ask, I'm going to call out a definition for a couple of those. Number one, what we're saying is we're not here to convince you that racism exists. We're going to assume our listeners know that to be true. Number two, we have to acknowledge and we are we are going to spend the rest of this show acknowledging that white privilege also exists, that we have benefited because of the color of our skin in almost every way, shape or form. And the third thing is that those systems that were created for white people by white people to benefit white people also have created systemic or institutional or structural racism that while benefiting us has disadvantages, disadvantaged others. Makes it harder. Makes it much harder. Mm -hmm. And so while we all believe that racism is bad and we don't want to be racist, we have to know that the systems that we're working within are in, in indeed or in, in fact racist. And this for me was a big aha moment. Mm-hmm. And as you know, Kirsten, I was like a lot of our listeners, I can assume, where A, I knew racism was bad. I didn't want to be racist. In fact, I even understood the benefit of a diverse workplace. Mm -hmm. Yeah, We wanted a diversity of voices. We wanted a diversity of experiences. And frankly, in my case, running a nonprofit, we wanted our staff and our board to represent the communities that we served. And yet the vast majority of people who worked for us we're white. Mm-hmm. And so well-intentioned, really wanting things to change. And finally realizing, as you know, again, I'm speaking about myself, I finally realized through a variety of trainings and readings that the system that I had created or that was created before I started working there, but I was perpetuating was the exact reason why the results were always the same. Mm-hmm. The way that we advertise jobs, mm-hmm. the requirements um, you have for the jobs, the educational requirements we had for jobs, where we advertise them, mm-hmm. you know, the hoops that you had to jump through in order to apply. But then when you even get the job, is it a place where the person of color actually has some like comfort or ability to work or are they isolated right you know are they or able tokenized. to be are they able to be effective so once you even get a person of color in the workplace it's like what is that even like for them exactly and i'll say even things like the language that we would use we would be assessing candidates before hiring even before interview and asking myself i would ask I would ask my staff, do you think this person would be a good cultural fit? So even that in itself, I'm looking around at a bunch of white people saying, you think this person will get along with us? Because they're white. Yeah, maybe. Sure. You know, and so so all of that 
those things are the tiny baby steps to changing the structural racism that I had perpetuated at this organization. And to me, that was like the biggest awakening, the realization Mm -hmm. that this workplace... Just that one question, Karina, is so interesting. Do you think this person is a good cultural fit? Yeah. Yeah, just that one question is so telling of how we, without really being conscious of it, and that's the thing I think where a lot of folks have a hard time with this concept of racism. Racism, I think people think racism is calling people the N-word or not hiring them because they're black. I think that's what people think. They think racism is intentional. Intentional, mean acts. And I'm just going to say mean acts. But I really think we need to look at it more broadly because I really think it involves all of this stuff when there are more hurdles for black people, then it is not fair. It is not equitable. It is not just, right? Right. And that is racism, right? When we treat people differently. So I know that's a really hard, hard word for people. It's a hard word to accept or to look at or to consider. But, you know, I said this to somebody the other day, you know, I was, we were talking about making mistakes in all of this. And I said, you know, my view is that I'm going to do my best. Kind of what we said in the beginning, I'm going to try really hard. I am going to make mistakes. And when somebody calls me on my mistake, I'm going to do my very best to not be defensive. And I'm, if somebody, I'm going to do my very best when somebody uses the word racism to not be defensive and to mm-hmm. instead listen. Mm-hmm. And that's probably the best reparation I can pay is just to listen and try and figure out what somebody is trying to tell me instead of getting defensive. Yeah. Right? Which I love the way you talk about the realization in your workplace. Wow, these things are not getting me what I really want. They're not getting me what I really want. And I do I do appreciate what you're just saying there about how when I came to that conclusion that I was actually the system that I was perpetuating was racist. Um, it was like a sucker punch, like mm-hmm. a gut punch. It's so right? awful. Right. You feel like crap. Oh, it's so awful. And, and a knee jerk response is to be defensive. I feel the same way about, you know, on the, and the other side of that coin is while it was also not an equitable hiring practice in the, you know, my example it also gave great benefit to white people. Mm-hmm. If you're if you could jump through all the hoops that I had or my predecessors had set up, it was benefiting the white people because of these other things. So again, back to that original definition, right? We're talking about white privilege and institutional racism, and they are both, you know, just two sides of the so same let's coin just, at work. Let's dip for just one second into those three kind of complicated words, and we're not going to spend a lot of time, and we're not going to get them perfect. But basically, here's what we're talking about when we say that. There's systemic racism, which you find like in a system, like the justice system or the educational system. And I would posit what, what you were talking about at your workplace mm-hmm. happens in the educational system, yeah. right? Yes. There's also institutional racism, which is policies or practices at a specific institution, like a university or whatever, but a specific place. Okay. So you've got systemic and you've got institutional. And then the last one is structural. And I think of this as the umbrella, and I'm not really sure if that's accurate, but it's really helpful to me to think that structural racism is, racism is like public policy. Like when we had redlining laws about where black people could live, yes, which is really shockingly throughout our communities. Obviously, it includes institutional racism, it includes systemic racism, it includes cultural norms, how we, how we behave as a culture. So it's kind of like the big overall umbrella. That's the structural racism piece. Okay, yeah. thanks for bringing us Just back to that. Just my little deal, yeah. So how does this play out at work? Work, yeah. Yeah. 
It's really interesting. We've talked about this, that the way you get a job at work is by knowing people. Yes, 70% of people got their job. Because they knew somebody. Because they knew somebody at the place. And the other day, I'm going to say, I was talking to somebody at work, and we need to hire somebody. And I said, well, you know, I know so-and-so. Let's see who so-and-so knows. And my very dear friend, Carrie, said to me, Kirsten, no, you cannot do, we cannot do this. We will not get a diverse pool of candidates if we just walk around with the people we know. We need to really reach out and do something different, right? Yep. Okay. And so then we reach out and we do something different and we get a whole bunch of resumes in, which is great. And what I want to point out is that even when you get a diverse pool of resumes, when we look at those resumes, our brain does weird things. Okay. So here's what the result is that 15% of applicants with a name that sounds like it's African-American or Asian or Hispanic, not a weight name, 15% of those applicants get resumes. But a statistically higher amount, 18%, a little over 18% of white-sounding names get interviews. So there is a data-driven, there, it's like data-driven proof that we think of people with those kinds of names differently, less positively, right? Yeah. They're less likely to get a resume. So we know what happens in hiring. It also happens, and we've had this conversation with regard to women moving up, but it happens throughout the hiring process so that when you really get to management positions, there's some pretty significant differences. You know, my favorite Harvard Business Review, love that. Why aren't black employees getting more white collar jobs? And they were reporting on an Ascend Foundation study. So Ascend Foundation created what's called an executive parity index, which includes like your race, your gender, and your job classification. So what kind of job you have. And I don't really quite understand the metrics that they used, but this executive parity index was a way to conflate all of the numbers about your race, your gender, and what job you held to provide an index as to the number of folks in management positions. And so the index for white men is 1.81, okay? The index for Hispanic men, 1.07, so probably 40% less. White women, 0.65, so half of what white men have. Black men, 0.63, so less than half of what we see with white men. Asian men, 0.56, even less. Hispanic women, 0.49. Black women, 0.3. And Asian women, 0.24. So we've just gone from an index for white men of 1.81 to Asian women at one at 0.24, so like one-sixth. So there's more data that tells us that if you are a person of color in the workplace, and then if you're particularly a woman, mm-hmm. it affects you, you know, there's that intersectionality, that there are less folks. Right. So there's more data. There's we more data. We have racial injustice and inequity in the workplace. God. Pew Research did actually a 2019 survey on views on race mm-hmm. in America. And it's, again, you know, all of these links can be found on our website or our show notes associated with the show. But they're asking people of different races if they've ever experienced racism, if they believe that it had impacted their lives and how. And a lot of in depth data. But I thought this was also interesting. Three quarters of blacks and Asians about 76%, and then 58% of Hispanics say that they have experienced discrimination or have been treated unfairly because of their race, okay? Incidentally, 
two-thirds of whites say they've never experienced that. I find that to be the most interesting number that we have or will discuss this show, which is that tells me there's 23% of white people that think they've experienced racism because they're white. Yeah. And you know what? I am not saying, okay, so let's just make the assumption for the moment that both candidates are equal. Right. And if we want a diverse workplace, we're going to hire the Hispanic candidate. So I'm going to posit something that's going to be really crazy to people. Okay. If you are equal in all respects, your education, your experience, and you're Hispanic, I'm going to posit that you actually are more qualified. I'm going to posit that when you bring a diversity into the workplace that we do not already have, you are bringing something different. And that difference, that that perspective, that ability to see things differently is actually leads to your qualification. I mean, it's part of what makes you a good worker. Right. I get that. But and so but you're going you went from 23 percent of America of white people saying that they. Yes. And so here's my point. It's like, I think white people think that when that happens... That they're being discriminated against. Because of their race. Which is ridiculous. Well, I'm not going to say it's ridiculous. I just don't think it's really well-grounded in their daily experience. Right. So you're you're saying, I don't know, that number's too high. I think that's... I think it's a weird number. I think I would love to know where those people... Who are those people? Who Who are are the 23% of people that think that they've had a bad time because they're white? I mean, unless they are a minority... And they feel like they have been. I mean, there may be. I don't be believe that. that there is any place in the United States where we can get twenty that much white people in the minority. Yeah, I don't know either. Okay, here's another statistic, and then. And by I, the way, thanks for bringing me back around to my point, which was what? No, it's good. I love that you were. I loved what you were saying. Half of Black adults saying being Black has hurt their ability to get ahead at least a little, with eighteen percent saying it's hurt them a lot. A quarter of Hispanics and Asians say the same thing. Only 5% of whites say that their race or ethnicity has had negative impacts on them, right? Okay, so what we have with these statistics and many, 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 many more is that people of color in these, in particular, the studies I was referencing, Blacks, Asians, and Hispanics, definitely feel racism, definitely feel that this color of their skin affects them, definitely feels like the color of their skin prevents them from getting ahead. And we got a bunch of white people wandering around going, what's the problem? We're not racist. No, we're we're colorblind. Yeah, we don't. I have black friends. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, that we're just back to that original point. That's what we're talking about is if we can't have open and honest conversations about this and admit that the reality. And and if we can't take the time to see it exist. Yes. And then to have the conversation. And I think the other thing about this is that if we again, if we can't have open, honest conversations and admit that where we are Mm -hmm. has been a product of privilege. Mm -hmm. Which again puts people on defense and makes it, you know, yeah. then, then, then solving this, beginning to solve this is difficult. And here we are, you know, the show is going to air at the tail end of Black History Month. We are celebrating the 100th anniversary of the vote. Of the vote. And the League of Women Voters. Right. And mm-hmm. these two things, and I just have to toss in, are really poignant in history because we're celebrating the 100th year of white women getting the vote. right to vote, right? And um, some women getting the yeah, right to some vote. Some women right to vote. And we're celebrating black history kind of simultaneously right now. And if we can't start talking about the overlay of race and gender, then again, we're sort of destined to continue to wander around going, "What? What's the problem? There's no problem." 
Yeah, it is. It's this, it's recognizing. I think the key for me is like just recognizing and being aware, right? Like I never have to talk to my son about how he behaves with police officers because he's a white kid who's super clean cut. I don't have to have the conversation that my black friend has to have with her kids. And so when we start talking about these kinds of things, where there's these little things like what your stinking hair looks like, and there's other conversations about how you talk to your children, right? it, it just to me is so urgent that we spend some time thinking about these things, unpacking them, and for God's sakes, not getting defensive. Right. Because that's when all of the walls go up. Mm-hmm. I used to have a coworker who would every once in a while kind of under their breath say to me, check your privilege. Check your privilege. Were you offended by that? Well, I, I was at first. And then I started to see it actually as a great gift. Because I think as somebody, I know that you don't like the term microaggression because I think you think it minimizes the, the word, I yeah. mean, the aggression. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as someone who feels microaggression, I'm going to use it anyway, five times a day, I was probably committing five a day. And I had somebody helping me see it. Yep. And to get rid of those. Yeah. And I'll just say for the audience, I don't like microaggression because I think it's just an aggression, right? I mean, whether you can't, I mean, whatever it is, it's just aggressive when your actions or your speech or the way you're behaving exclude or treat differently people because of the color of their skin or their gender or their sexuality or whatever it happens to be. Yeah. Or what you say assumes that you, that everyone is like you, is like you in season, mm-hmm. which is, which I is think fundamentally what our privilege is about. Right. Which is where I, what I would do a lot. I think I probably still do it. So I haven't someone in my life who said, check your privilege. It was hard for me to hear at first, but I came to get used to it because it happened a lot. So in the final few minutes of the show, Kirsten, I feel like we opened up saying we wanted to be talk. We wanted to talk about this. We knew it wasn't going to be perfect. We knew we were going to stumble, but we also know that this is important. And we as white women need to be okay stumbling around. Having these conversations, being aware, trying to learn more, because at the end of the day, like the benefits of diversity are rich, right? The more people that we get to know and love, I mean, it's it's not just at the workplace, it's in our lives, period, right? Right. You know, being aware of white privilege and racism is about reducing suffering. You know, I'm all about suffering. Yes. I want ease. I don't want people suffering. That's just not bearable, right? Yeah. But it's great because in relieving the suffering and getting rid of that, we also get an amazing benefit, It's like, good for us. I mean, we do this great work, right, which is the more important part, which is creating a fair and just society. But it also benefits us, too. We get to be the benefactors of this. And I think when we don't have that, we also suffer. So thank you so much for sticking with us on this subject and for really thinking yeah, just just looking inward and looking at the systems that you are a part of and that you perpetuate and asking, who are we leaving out? Who are we leaving out? What can I say or do in this moment to change that? Yeah. Yeah. And please uh, send us your feedback. I know Always. it's a rich subject. You know, f- yeah, absolutely. Find us at you get to work at gmail.com. Thank you so much for sticking with us on this episode. Thanks for working. Bye, folks. Thanks for working. Bye. Krina and Kirsten Get to Work is recorded and produced by yours truly, Krina Hoyer and Kirsten Barron. Find all of our episodes anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can also find us on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, on our website, or email us at you get to work 
at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 